having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents. 
So just like that coin, I hope you've been found. I hope that you, you know that there was once a day you were lost and you have been found by Christ and that heaven is rejoiced, that his grace has been sufficient to pay your debt. So we are gathered because of Christ, because of Jesus, Lord Jesus, who has given his life on behalf of sinful humanity, that anyone who would call upon his name would be saved. And like this woman's lost coin, would be found, would be found by the Savior to know him for eternity. That is why we're here, that's why we're gathered, what we're singing about, about Christ. So welcome, my name is Matthew. I'd like to welcome you if you're a guest. There should be a card that looks just like this in the pew in front of you. Uh, that is connection card, I think is what it's still called. I'd love to have a record of your visit. If you would fill that out, drop that in the offering basket on your way out or uh, if you have a prayer need you would like to share, that's another, another mode of sharing that, that need. So by way of a few announcements, we have a group of people coming in this afternoon. Uh, if you've noticed the trailers over here in the parking lot, we have a group of three churches, about 150 people coming to spend the week with us. They'll be staying on campus this week and going out into Mobile to serve, to serve and re-roof several houses in Mobile and to uh, be hands and feet of Christ uh, this week. And so this mission team that's coming in, they'll be here this week. I want to encourage you uh, to be in prayer for them as they're serving, uh, to stop by during the week and, and uh, say hi. And this, this evening, because they are coming this afternoon, we will not have any activities on campus, so no regularly scheduled service together. Uh, and this Wednesday, we will be off campus for a, for a fellowship time. And so as our kids, uh, ladies, and students have been meeting each week on campus for, uh, for, for different times together, we'll take everything off campus to be over at the fort, uh, the container park over there, the fort I think is what it's called, uh, to, to spend some time together, 6 o'clock this Wednesday. And so family, everybody, you're invited to come hang out, come grab some food, and we'll have water and cookies to share, and we'll have a a short devotion time together, but it's just it's a fellowship time to come spend time together, uh, get to know each other, and to enjoy, enjoy the evening. And so that would be this Wednesday night fellowship. Uh, also, uh, we have uh, some, some additional news to share with you. I believe an email went out uh, this week, but uh, our preschool director, weekday preschool director, Tracy Dale, uh, her family will be relocating to Tennessee here shortly, sensing the Lord directing them. Uh, up to uh, up to relocate up there, uh, she will be uh, she'll be leaving uh, here in a few few weeks, at the end of August, and so we are in we're in search uh, prayerfully for uh, somebody to fill in to her her role as she has served faithfully for several years uh, the the weekday preschool here at Faith Family and has done a tremendous job. Uh, serving the families, the parents, and the kids uh, during, during the weekday preschool. So, would you join me in prayer as we pray for the Dale family, and we also pray for this group who is coming in uh, this afternoon and spending the week with us and for our time together. Father God, thank you, Lord, for your abundant grace and mercy. And Lord, you seek to save the lost you seek to 
open the blind eyes of sinners like me, then, Lord, you have called and drawn unto salvation. And so, Father, I thank you so much for your initiating work of saving people. And, Lord, I ask you to do that this morning, that, Lord, you would open eyes that are blind. God, you would direct steps of wayward people, that you would direct them towards you. So, God, draw us this morning by your word, that, Lord, we would be drawn to repentance, some to fresh, brand new faith in Christ, and some to renewed faith, Lord, that you would draw us this morning. I thank you for this group coming in. Lord, that this group of students and adults who are coming to serve families in Mobile, that, God, you would use them for your glory and for the, for the sharing of your gospel. That, God, each one of their hearts would be focused on you and being used by you for your glory. So, God, would you protect and provide for them and use them in this community, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity to gather together Wednesday. Lord, that you would bless that time of fellowship. God, would you be with the Dale family? Thank you, Lord, so much for them. Thank you for Tracy's service over the last several years. Lord, we ask your provision as they go. That God, you would take them, uh, relocate them, and replant them in a, in a local body of faith. That God, you would give them uh, strong, God, relationships and a fellowship. Lord, we thank you and ask all these things.
Oh, 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 oh. oh, oh. 
Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, and for scripture through prayer. God, I pray for Dr. Ab as he comes up to bring your word, God, that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. God, that we will leave this room better equipped to serve you, God, to glorify you, to show your love to those around us. Lord, thank you again so much for this time. We love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
morning. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today, and uh, this, is what happens, this is what happens when you miss church. I wasn't in church last Sunday, and so I get a text from Joel who said, hey, uh, why don't you preach on repentance next Sunday? So if you miss church, just look what you might look forward to, the opportunity to research and to prepare. I appreciate Pastor Joel. He's a good pastor to me. I know he is to all of you. And the great thing about the opportunity today is that our pastor is an expository preacher. And you have the great gain of sitting under his teaching because he teaches the Bible verse by verse, line by line. So you get a full understanding of God's intent for the Word. Then he gives the opportunity for people like me to come and bring a topical sermon that emphasizes a single point or issue found in the larger text. And today, as you may know, he asked me to talk about repentance. And it's something that, as a biblical counselor, I deal with a lot, because repentance is the, really the cornerstone of biblical care. Because when repentance comes, change and empowerment becomes possible. Whether that be by the conversion of an unbelieving heart, or through the correction of a believer who has fallen, away or who has hardened himself to God's power and authority. So repentance is critical for all of us. I want to talk to you today about what repentance is and what it isn't, give some biblical examples of what repentance looks like, because it is a thread that runs throughout the entirety of Scripture. And, and part of what overwhelms me in preparing to teach about repentance is there's so much in the Bible that addresses the topic. Beginning in the Old Testament and working its way all the way through to Revelation, God calls his people repeatedly to repent, to draw near, to return to him. And so there's not a more critical message I think that we could examine today, especially in the nature of today's world. You know, this sermon arises out of pastor's recent teaching on First and Second Peter. And I think all of us could agree that these times look a lot like what the Bible describes as the end times. And in the last chapter of Second Peter, Second Peter 3, uh, Peter is addressing scoffers and false teachers who are saying that all of these tenets of the gospel that you have been told that Christ is going to return, that there's going to be a day of the Lord, there's going to be a day of judgment, that's all false. And it's false because look at how much time has passed and nothing has come of these claims. Well, let's go back to the, the passage that we're building from, and then we'll go forward from there. Time, Peter said to his audience, is not a consideration. So in 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8, Peter wrote, he said, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Don't miss that. Patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, 
and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? Father God, I just turn to you and pray that you would empower this time that you would give us insight and understanding, Lord, to your intent, your will for this matter of repentance. And Lord, guide us into all the truth that we may be changed by your word, not convicted only, not stirred to emotion, but truly transformed, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, who is Peter addressing in these letters, these epistles? Some commentators debate the issue, and they said that perhaps he's speaking to all of humankind. But most commentators agree that this letter and this reference to repentance is to us. It is to the church, the elect of God. He's speaking directly to you and to me. He's speaking about grace to those who are already converted and grace to those who are yet to respond to the gospel of salvation even those who are part of the local church but may not have yet come to the saving realization of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is patient toward lost sinners because some will come to faith and become a part of God's chosen people. But God's call to repentance is also for the redeemed of Christ, pressing us toward sanctification and purification in advance of the Lord's return. As the text reads, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. Now, what is repentance? What is Peter talking about? What does the entirety of Scripture reference? Well, you've probably heard it described many ways, and I, want to, I probably will repeat some of what you've heard, but we want to go to Scripture as much as we can to really outline and define what we're talking about. But repentance is a gift of God. You have to understand that it absolutely is a gift of God because in our human nature, we do not have the capacity for godly sorrow and repentance. I'm sorry, but I'm not that sorry. There has to be an action taken of God to prompt the human heart to awaken to its condition, to awaken to the standards and the character the ordinances of God, so that we can see our wrongdoing in the countenance of his face. The light of his countenance, the Bible says, is like the sun shining in his strength. He exposes and lays bare all that we know and all that we do not know. And that's what happens when repentance is coming, when you're being stirred and convicted. And that conviction comes, of course, by the Word, by the instruction of the Word. And that's why Christians, believers, we have to be regularly partaking in the Word because it is your encounter with your Savior. When you go to the Word, you are listening to God's revelation of Himself to you. And He's teaching you about Himself and about the glory of His magnificent character. And He's teaching you about yourself. And how far short we fall of that aim that we have to be Christ-like. 
So it is a gift of God stirred and orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. Repentance is a change of mind and it is a change of direction. We, like sheep, have all gone astray. We all want to go our own way. But when repentance comes, our movement is stopped. It is redirected. We are turned from self to Christ. And as we turn, we express agreement with his character, his standards, his law. It's a movement away from everything that is self-indulgent, everything that is self-pleasing, desiring to be in right alignment with the character of God. When we confess our sins, we are agreeing with God that he is righteous, sovereign, and worthy, and that we are dependent upon his grace and power to save, and we are dependent upon his grace to empower our lives as believers. Sometimes we get a wrong notion of repentance, and we think that it is something that we stir up in ourselves, we identify wrongness in our lives, and we want to state to the Lord, I'm sorry. Well, that is part of repentance. But the repentance is not found in the words that I say, but in the interaction between the Holy Spirit and my heart. There has to be a transformation that takes place that softens the heart so that I see myself as I'm seen by the Lord. The great author and theologian, A.W. Pink. I, I, most of the preachers, preachers I really like are dead. Right? And he, was, he, he wrote mostly in the early 20th century. And he wrote that true repentance issues from a realization in the heart, wrought wherein by the Holy Spirit, of the sinfulness of sin. Of the awfulness of ignoring the claims of God and defying his authority. It is therefore a holy horror and hatred of sin, a deep sorrow for it, an acknowledgement of it before God, and a complete heart forsaking of it. Not until this is done will God pardon us. That sounds a little different, sounds a lot different than how I have repented at times. It sounds very different than what I've heard counselees say in repentance. Clearly, repentance follows a shift in one's orientation, a shift from self to God. It's, a way, it's an awakening of the heart to the true gravity of sin and the wrongness before majesty. Repentance is not grieving over earthly consequences of sin. i got to tell you, a lot of times what we call repentance is worldly sorrow because we've been exposed, we've been caught, or we've suffered consequences for our sinful activity. That's not repentance. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance back in the 1600s. And he wrote, among other things, that repentance is not guilt or shame or self-condemnation. In fact, true and complete repentance is a central element of redemption. And we know the promise of the word that says that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So repentance is not an ongoing 
criticism and condemnation of the self. Instead, it is freeing, it is joyous, because there's a completeness to it where you have answered God's requirement to confess your sins. And for believers, a repentant lifestyle is freeing and joyful in every way. It restores and sustains one's connectedness to Christ and thereby keeps us in the fullness of his presence. Our proximity to Christ will determine everything of significance about our spiritual lives, about our service to the Lord. If we are distant from Christ, we surely will be less than we should be as believers. Our nearness to him defines everything about who we're going to be. Secondly, Watson says that human discipline and the promise to change is not repentance. How many times have you said to your spouse, I won't do that again? Or to the Lord, I'm going to change. I'm going to put that matter away. It's never going to happen again. I'm never going to say those words again. I'm never going to look at those images again. And it's a promise that comes from self-determination and self-discipline, which we know is likely to fail. Because you cannot manage or control sin. Sin has to be transformed. Right? Behavior is not something that the human can modify. If we could, we would have kept the law and Christ would never have had to die at Calvary. In Jeremiah 13, under the threat of judgment and exile, God's people promised the Lord to modify their lives. They promised God that they would change if only he would withhold his wrath. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God gave the following answer. He said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Unlikely, right? He said, then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. God challenges the very essence of the claim that I can reverse field and do right. He knows that without the transformative work of repentance in the heart and true godly sorrow, bringing about change of character, behavior change is unlikely. Human change depends upon the powerful working of God and not personal will. Thirdly, repeating certain words or prayers in a repetitive ceremonial manner is not repentance. Long ago, when I was in my 40s, I belonged to a little bitty Baptist church. And that, that church was so old that in my 40s, I was in the youth group. And every Wednesday night, I would pray with these old gentlemen, of which I would now qualify to be part of their group. And they would pray and pray to keep all the old people out of heaven. Yeah, Lord, please, Miss Martha's just about dead. She's 99 years old. Please just keep her alive just a little bit longer, Lord. We hate to lose her. I'm saying, let the lady go on to Jesus. But they're interceding for her continued life. And then they would end by saying, and if, Lord, if we have sinned against you, please forgive us. Amen. And that was their ritual. That was a summation of their godly sorrow. If we have sinned against you, please forgive us. Well, that's wholesale prayer. That's saying to the Lord, I got an 18-wheeler full of sin. I'm going to park it at the loading dock. 
I don't want to look in there. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to mess with it. You just forgive all of that and let me get on my way. God wants a retail prayer. He wants you to open that truck and open every box and take out every item and attach a price to it. And there was a price paid, was there not? <clears throat> For every sin in that truck. He wants that type of awareness. He wants that remembrance. Not so that we go around sad and defeated, but we go around in thankfulness, rejoicing in the magnificence of this grace that has been extended to one as depraved as I. So whatever ritual that we cling to, where I feel I've covered all my prayer bases and made sure that I mention the topic of sin, that I'm in good order, connected to Christ, empowered to go forward. And by the way, this applies to the prayer of salvation. How many hundreds of people believe that their salvation rests on the recitation of certain words? I believe that certain words need to be said when the Lord draws you. When the Lord convicts your heart that you are a sinner in need of grace and salvation. But I don't think that there's a set standard, an incantation that one can speak that is salvific. What saves the individual is the action of God moving upon the heart that prompts the confession. The Bible says in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We've turned that into, if I just say the right words, I will be saved. But I believe the confession with the mouth follows the transformation that has already occurred. That I've already been prompted to repentance and godly sorrow and faith from which my mouth confesses the Lord Jesus Christ. And be careful about inviting people to pray certain words about any matter of sin, any matter of salvation, any matter of restoration in their life, thinking that those words will save them. God saves the blood of Jesus Christ. The substitutionary atonement on the cross is what saves us. The repentance and godly sorrow is a byproduct of God's movement upon the heart that needs to be saved. Our mouth expresses what has already occurred in the heart. Finally, repentance alone does not save. I just talked about that, so we'll skip on past that. Here's what the Baptist faith and message says. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. And the Westminster Confession uh, gives us further understanding. It says, although repentance, be not, although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. There is a common day movement in the church of God that repentance is antiquated and unnecessary. That you simply make a request for grace, you make a request for God to come into your heart 
and change your life without any awareness of sin, any conviction, any grief, any godly grief that stirs you to confess and that you can be saved. But I'm telling you that I believe if God is drawing one unto salvation, repentance will have to come. So again, the Bible isn't saying that you must repent to be saved, but it's saying that in your salvation and in the drawing and working of God, you will repent. Godly sorrow will be fundamental to where you're standing and how you're expressing yourself before the Lord. Why do we need to repent? Because we're separated from God. The unbeliever is separated by the gulf of sin. There's no remedy for that gulf but the Lord Jesus Christ. But you realize that as a believer, you too can be separated from God. You have not lost your salvation. You remain in his grip of grace. But certainly, repetitive and willful sin taking root in the heart of a believer divides us from the fullness of Christ, the connectedness to to Christ, the empowerment of Christ. The prophet Isaiah described the impact of unrepented sin in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. He said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. He can reach anywhere he chooses. He is not restrained. Nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. He hears and knows it all. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's a desperate circumstance for for a believer to be in. I've been in that circumstance. Maybe you have. Where you have a great need, you have a great pain, a hunger. You know that you are in a condition of wrongness before God. And you feel the distance. I said to my spiritual father, Bruce, one time, I said, I feel so far away from the Lord. He said, don't you miss him? And I did miss him. He reminded me that it is a real relationship that depends upon my response, my maintenance, my consideration of my heart's condition before God at all times. Repentance is part of the removal of that separation. For the believer, it brings us back into the Lord's presence and it reunites us with his capacity. Because if you haven't noticed, the the Christian life is a human uh, impossibility. Trying to be good, upright, faithful, obedient. How can we tackle such a monumental mountain without the grace and empowerment of God. And so repentance and this this self-examination, the humility that it produces in our hearts prompts us to desire and cling to his presence. Now, if you need evidence of the need for repentance... I'll have to go through this kind of briefly because the pastor picked on me about the number of 
passages I picked for today's sermon, he said it was a human impossibility to read them all. But in the Old Testament, God taught and repentance was proclaimed repeatedly. The law was given as our tutor so that we would know the character of God and his standards of righteousness. So when you look into the perfect law of God, you see the incredible holiness that he is. And there is obviously a light that examines your heart and exposes your heart. Without the law, human beings could not know their state and status before God. And since the fall of man, God has continually called his people to repent and be restored. I'll focus just on one segment of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 30. It's a great chapter for you to read because we can't go through it all today. But in this circumstance, God's people had divided themselves from the Lord. They had taken up an allegiance with Egypt. And they were relying upon Egypt's power and influence and wealth as their provision. And the Lord warned them in verse 1 of chapter 30. He said, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin. Have you ever had that type of alignment, that type of association, that type of affection for something other than God? Certainly our love for our sin compels us at times to remain in the sin. And we have to conclude that our love for the wrongness of that sin is greater than our affection for the Lord. God continued in verse 9, he said, For this is a rebellious people, false sons. Sons who refuse to listen. They refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, he says. And here was Judah's response. They said, Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. So even in the midst of the instruction and the warning, God's people's heart was hard. Have you ever known a hard heart? Have there been times that you know the instruction of the word and you even feel the conviction and the stirring of the spirit, yet you resist that movement? And sometimes do you ever want to cover your ears and say, let me hear no more of this? So God answered the hardness. He said in verse 15, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. Here's the solution. Here is the answer to your plight. Here is my call and promise. But you are not willing. And so many times as Christians... We prolong our suffering. We prolong our frailty. We fail to listen to and answer the word of God and the stirring of the Spirit and repent so that we can be restored and empowered again in our walk with Christ. Why we harden, I don't really understand so much. I don't understand it in myself when I do that and when I refuse to bend my knee 
to the God of heaven. But we are just that way sometimes. The Lord continues to plead. He continues to beg. And even throughout the Old Testament, when he would bring earthly judgment upon his people, exile, disease, wars, whatever it might be, he was always begging their return. So even while he disciplined his children, he begged them to please come back to him. Finally, in the same chapter, Isaiah 30 and verse 18, we see God's response. He says, therefore, since you don't want to hear any more from me, therefore, since you will not repent and return to me, therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Another translation says he waits to be gracious to you. That's reminiscent of the text that led us in to today, where it says that the Lord is patient, not wanting for any uh, to be punished, but to come to repentance. Therefore the Lord longs, waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. So he doesn't leave them. He doesn't forsake them. But he waits. And he's waiting for us. That's what the text today tells us. He's waiting for us as the church to come into the fullness of his design. For the fullness of the elect to be brought to salvation. And for the purification of his church. So that we are prepared to be in his presence when he returns. The heart and character of God is to be gracious. But due to the willful heart of his people, God sometimes waits to render his compassion. Why? Because the Lord is a God of justice. That's what the scripture says. God will not contradict himself and he does not change his mind. God does not administer grace to an unrepented heart. Consequently, he longs and waits to convey the grace and benevolence to those who have humbled themselves before him. Clearly, God aches for the redemption of the lost and the restoration of the fallen. And we can go further. The gospel is all about repentance, among other things. We think that the gospel is not about repentance, but it is. You realize that between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years passed without a prophetic word, miracle, or sign from heaven. But then in Matthew 3, a prophet arrives on the scene. It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, First message after 400 years of silence, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First word. After John the Baptist was arrested and murdered, the first message that Jesus preached was what? Matthew 4, 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus did not begin his ministry with parable or miracle. 
He didn't start by healing the infirmed. He did not pledge grace and forgiveness. Rather, he pointed to the universal heart of man demanding consideration of God's law. Because if you don't know the magnitude of your sin, how can you ask for and receive the magnitude of his grace? How can you receive grace if you don't know that you need grace? Not only did Jesus begin his ministry by proclaiming the human need for repentance, he ended his time on earth in much the same way. You remember that when he was walking on the road to Emmaus with several of his disciples, he opened their eyes and ears to remember the scriptures. He referenced the prophets. He referenced Moses. And he reminded them of the integrity of scripture that leads to, to repentance. His final message there was, thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That was the fabric of the gospel. It was central to the progression of the gospel through God's people. Here Jesus points to his substitutionary death on the cross as a necessary provision of God. It is this satisfaction of justice that drives believers to proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins. These critical concepts are tied. Repentance for forgiveness. In the original language, this text is rendered a change of mind leading to the dismissal, release, and pardon of sins. That's sweet. That's really sweet. I'm editing as I go. We can't do all of this. Peter preached on repentance. You heard his message in, first, in 2 Peter 3, but he also preached at Pentecost, didn't he? And he pierced the hearts of the people who were listening, and he awakened them to the wrongness of their sin, that they had put Christ to death. And when they heard all of this, in Acts 2, verse 37... They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to have to close with this. I'm going to get into Paul, because Paul gives, gives one of the most central discussions of repentance and godly sorrow that we need to hear. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about letters that he has written to the Corinthians in the past and how those letters had provoked sorrow amongst the people. And he said in, um, beginning in verse uh, 8, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. He had written them confronting their rampant sins of immorality, idolatry, and unbelief. He goes on, he says, But now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. So sorrow is not beneficial in and of itself, but that it leads to, it propels one into a status of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. 
so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Paul indicates that he had reservations about the intensity of his earlier letter, but no longer is burdened with regret. Instead, he rejoices that the Corinthians were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. That, he says, is the will of God. Don't miss that. Whenever the Lord tells you this is the will of God, we need to take notice, and it is his will, that we experience godly grief leading to repentance. In fact, the next verse, verse 10, says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God. Godly grief, godly sorrow. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. A lot of people get fooled by the sorrow of the world. And a lot of times in our embarrassment, our shame, our exposure, as we grapple with the consequences of sin in our lives, lost marriages, estrangement from children, physical decline, and all kinds of earthly benefits. In James 1, it says that all unrepented sin leads eventually to death. And there can be a great deal of sorrow about the consequences of sin, but that is not godly sorrow. You can have both. You can be sorrowful for the condition that you're in, and you can have sorrow for the people that you've hurt. And part of our repentance does include going to make restitution, make reparation with circumstances and people that we've hurt. But godly sorrow is the framework for true and complete repentance. Worldly sorrow can be self-focused, self-indulgent, and a product of human will. And many come to prayer, many come to counsel, some come to the altar with great sorrow, but they're lacking godly sorrow and they find no remedy. See, worldly sorrow and emotion sometimes produces relief. But relief is not salvific. We're not people who seek after relief. We're people who seek after transformation. We don't want a temporal appeasement for the shame and discomfort of our lives. We want a remedy from heaven. And this is where repentance carries us. Some are sorry when their sin is exposed, when a, por- when a pornography problem is revealed, or when an illicit relationship is uncovered. Others are sad and grieving over the consequences of their sin, like when a divorce occurs. The sorrow alone is not fruitful. Now, there is a fruit of repentance. One thing Pastor Joel asked or mentioned last week to you is that I would address, I think the question was, if, if I continue to sin, did I really repent? Well, true repentance bears fruit. In fact, John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And Paul addressed that in the same chapter, 2 Corinthians 7, but in verse 11 he says, For behold, here's the fruit. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. Now listen to these words. We won't have time to, to dissect them all today. But there's a vindication of yourself. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Now that last statement is quite phenomenal if you didn't notice it. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. True and complete godly sorrow leading to repentance restores our innocence before the Lord. How can that be? Because that is His grace, that is His nature to forgive when we understand the true gravity of what we have done wrong. King David wrote, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. John wrote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is a complete action of the Lord. So repentance restores your standing before the Lord. It restores your position, your proximity to Christ, and it gives you empowerment to go forward. But there are some other things that interfere with repentance and the completeness of it. Because have you ever repented and yet sinned again? Sometimes, in fact, the repetition seems willful and we begin to be hardened even by it. I want to encourage you that when you think about repentance, to think not only about the behavior of the sin. Because I think that sometimes when repentance is sincere but incomplete, you've not addressed the root of the problem. If my problem is pornography, I can repent of the behavior, but have I repented of the idolatry? Have I repented of the lust, the pride? Every behavioral sin has a root. The behavioral sin is just the fruit on the tree. You can pluck it off, but it's going to grow back. So as you ponder your condition before the scriptures and as you listen for the drawing of the Spirit, consider what does this behavior attach to? What lies beneath my conduct that grows back season after season after season? I'm phobic. I'm terrified all the time. But what about the root of unbelief? I have temper outbursts. What about the bitterness underneath? What about the wrath that lies in the heart that contaminates and defiles? So when we're reading the 
imperatives of Scripture that say stop this and start that, remember that there's a reason that this and that is occurring. It has to do with your heart. Always dig deeper in the Scriptures to see and have exposed what is truly at the bottom of this matter. As we say in Alabama, right, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. Right? Well, I say it in Robertsdale anyway. Maybe not over here. Um, John Frame, a great theologian in Jackson, Mississippi, he said the fall did not begin with Eve's eating the fruit, but with her inner intention to eat the fruit. He said the law that forbids uh, adultery also forbids lust. The law that forbids murder also forbids the heart condition of anger. So we have to go beyond. But I think that we can't let the repetition of sin after supposed repentance become something that we are hardened to or become cavalier about. We talk too much about the struggle. We talk about falling and getting back up. We sometimes commiserate with each other that the Christian life is hard and nobody's perfect. You ain't going to be perfect till you get to heaven. That's true enough. But there's a standard of holiness that we're called to. And you can't become complacent that when I have repented and yet my sin returns, I can't just say, well, I'll repent again and I'll repent Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. You have to know that there's an impediment, there's there's a wrong, there's something impeding that completed process that would put that sin away forever. Do you have things in your life that were once present that no longer exist? Sure you do. That's true repentance. Do you have some that linger and press on you and tempt you and strangle you at times? I'm not sure that that's been repented. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. He said that if we go on sinning willfully after having received knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. A lot of commentary on this passage, but let me just say this. I think what he's getting to here is that we are treating the sacrifice for sin as if it is of no account. We're nailing our Savior again to the cross. We become careless about our willful and repetitive actions. And, of course, you cannot forget what Paul wrote in Romans 6. He said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? How many times people tell me, I'm under the grace of God. Jesus has saved me. Yes, I'm having an affair, but Jesus forgives me. Yes, I'm getting a divorce without biblical grounds, but Jesus forgives me. If you were born again, there's truth in your statement, but be careful about the heart that expresses it. 
the grace of God is for past, present, and future sins. That's true. But we are accountable for every word, every action. And we talk about reverence for God and fear of God. The Christians should have a greater understanding of that than the unbeliever. We know the Lord. We know his character. We know his holiness. How can we act so callously about his character and standards? Work out your salvation, Paul wrote, with fear and trembling. Knowing that it is God who is at work in you. What shall we say then, Paul writes, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. Commentators say that's the closest Paul ever came to cursing. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's our call. Will you eradicate it completely? No, you won't. But what is your mindset? What is your heart's intent? What is your heart's desire? And what is your affection? If the root of that affection is killed out, there's freedom. And the joy of salvation, the joy of repentance, is the freedom that it brings. You know, innocent people walk around differently than guilty people. Guilty people kind of slunch over. They, they, don't, they don't make eye contact. They don't want to look at anybody. They're kind of restricted in their movement. But innocent people stand up straight. They look you in the eye. They walk freely about within the boundaries that the Lord has provided. It's a great joy to be in a repentant climate with the Lord. Quick to turn to Him. Quick to bend your knee. Quick to be humbled by His Word. Moved by His Spirit. It's a powerful element of our Christian existence. Going back to Isaiah 30, I promise I'm through. You remember all the struggle that God's people had, refusing to listen to the Lord, refusing to repent. The Lord has suspended his compassion. He says the Lord longs to be gracious to you. But then it describes what happens when that repentant turn comes. Now listen to this. This is good stuff. Because repentance is not a heavy hammer to be applied to your head and heart. It is a hope. It is a freedom. It is a joyous reality. And here's the result. He says, O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. The Lord hears you, and he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Remember what Job said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now... Now I see you. He comes back into focus. Your alignment is right. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Wouldn't you like to know where to walk? Don't you have questions every day? Lord, what do I do? How do I get up? How do I withstand this matter? And you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone. You will put away 
your idolatrous affections. In favor and celebration of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he has done for you, you can live in thankfulness with great fruitfulness and camaraderie with the Lord Jesus. He goes on from there. I won't read it, but you should read it. Isaiah 30 talks about rain for the seed, profitable, plentiful harvest. It talks about fat and, uh, and uh, great livestock. It just goes on to say how the Lord will bless your walk and your alignment with him as your repentance bears fruit. I know that each of us today can examine ourselves by the word and find reason to repent. And I encourage you that, that as you contemplate these passages and as you go to other passages in Scripture, that you search out the will of the Lord for the sorrow that is according to the will of God. Produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. So as a people, as a church, we need to live within that climate of repentance. It's not a sorrowful climate. It's a freeing and and joyful climate. Near to the Lord, sensitive to his standards, yielded to his concerns. I pray that for all of us this will be a turn that we make. Let me pray with you and then we will close for today. Lord, how great and high are your standards. How wonderful are your mercies. How profound is your majesty. And Lord, I know that I fail sometimes to see you as you should be seen. I fail sometimes to worship you. And Lord, we all can find guilt in our affections for other things. Lord, I pray that even this very day that you would come near to us and that you would provoke within us a desire to know you more deeply, to yield our hearts to your directives, And that we would be sensitive to the stirring of your spirit that would advise us to your call for godly sorrow and repentance. Lord, help us to do what is against our nature. Help us to yield. Help us to come towards you, Lord, rather than to go our own way. And Lord, empower us by the great grace and working that you have promised in your word. We love you, Lord. We need you so much. And we just pray, God, that you would uh, go forward with us as we leave today, Lord, and help us as only you can do, I pray, our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.